Hello everyone, welcome to the Firm Returns podcast. This is episode two, so I can officially call it a podcast series. Alright, so today I'm going to have a look at, well, I'm going to go through the write-up I did on Sumero Enterprises, so quite different to, uh, about as different as you can get to the previous podcast I've done, which was on Warner Brothers Discovery this time, which was a company with a market cap somewhere around the $40 billion mark. This one's now a company with a market cap around the $250 million point, so very much a a micro cap. Uh, So yeah, let's just uh, go through the, the overview I've got here for the company. So Sumero Enterprises Inc. is a US industrial company manufacturing equipment for concrete leveling, contouring and placing. It has been listed on the alternative investment market, also known as AIM, AIM, of the London Stock Exchange since 2006 and currently has 55.8 million shares outstanding, trading for a combined market capitalization of circa 204 million pounds, which like I said is about 250 million dollars at the current conversion rate. Their history is encapsulated concisely in this excerpt from the AIM admission document. So this is the admission document from back in 2006 and it reads as and this uh, little excerpt reads as follows. Sumero was founded by members of the Sumero family in 1986. Who would have guessed? The year in which it it introduced the first model of the laser screed. In 1997, Summit Partners invested in Sumero and brought in a new management team led by Sumero's current president and chief executive officer, Mr. John T., also known as Jack Cooney. Sumero was subsequently sold to Dover Corporation in 1999. In 2005, an affiliate of the Gores Group, a private equity company based in Los Angeles, California, acquired Sumero from Dover Corporation. So I've made a little note here as well, saying it should be noted that Jack Cooney stepped down as president of the company in 2021, but remains CEO. So we'll cover the management in more detail later on. Let's just have a look through the the products that they offer. So the company pioneered the laser screed technology that enables efficient and precise concrete leveling. The wide range of products developed and sold by Sumero allow this technology to be deployed in almost all construction settings, whether this be large-scale projects such as warehouses or public infrastructure, small-scale residential developments or high-rise buildings. As illustrated in the first chart below, so we've got a chart here showing revenue by product line, units by product line and revenue per unit by product line, so this a combination of the two. So as illustrated by the first chart below, boomed and ride-on screeds are the company's largest revenue generators, with boomed screeds standing out by a wide margin. In terms of units sold, the picture is a little more balanced across product lines, boomed and ride-on screeds and Sumero Line Dragon units volumes are all comparable. So I'll go in, I'll give you the figures in a minute, but let's finish this off. Much of the difference in revenue is explained by the third chart, which shows the average revenue per unit by product line. 
This substantially higher value per unit of the boom screeds widens the gap in revenue versus units sold. So, sorry, the, yeah. So the first graph is the revenue by product line, second graph is units by product line, and the third graph is effectively the, uh, the first graph divided by the second graph to give you the revenue per unit by product line. So you can just get an idea of how much they sell each individual unit for. So just to give you the figures here, the, the boom screeds brought in net sales of in 2021, $65.4 million, which was a pretty massive increase on the previous year of 31.7. Obviously 2020 being the, a big year of the, a large part of the pandemic. And a lot of uh, projects and so on, were, I imagine, would have been put on hold. And then the next, in terms of revenue generation, the next one down is is ride-on screeds, which produced twenty one point three million dollars. They produced that in twenty twenty one, and in twenty twenty they produced seventeen point six million dollars. So it's quite a big difference. So in twenty twenty, it was about just over half of what the boom screeds were doing but now it's sort of less than a third so as we'll see with the next graph showing the the units sold a lot of this comes down to the fact that the the value of the boom screeds which are the much larger meteor machines are significantly it is significantly higher per unit than the uh, than the ride-on ones which are smaller uh, obviously aren't as a fit aren't designed to do such big projects sort of indoors quite often as the boom screeds which might be big outdoor projects doing a big an airfield or a, a big car parking structure or something like that a big outdoor area that needs smoothing over so in terms of units sold with the boom screeds, it was 218 units in 2020 versus 125 in 20. Sorry, that was in 2021 versus 125 in 2020. So quite a big jump up, but not as much as the the revenue, which implies that there's been an increase in, in price per unit sold as well. And then, the, but then the ride-on screeds, rather than being just a third like they were in terms of revenue. Are pretty close. They're 181 versus, and the, and it was 157 in 2020 as well. So, in both years, pretty comparable levels to the 218. In fact, in 2020, they sold more units than the the boom screeds. 157 ride-ons sold versus 125 boomed. And then, as I mentioned as well, the Sumero Line Dragon, which is another of their products sold 132 units in 2020 and actually had a little a bit of a, a decrease in 2021 down to 110 but still all of them quite comparable so yeah then we move on to the revenue per unit by product line so we can see just to give you an idea the boom screeds in 2021 were selling for about three hundred thousand dollars each versus 254,000 in 2020 
Ride on Screeds in 2021 were selling for about $118,000 versus 112 in 2020. The, they have a category called uh, remanufactured machines, which is effectively refurbished machines, and they're, they're usually some of the big boom screeds, I, I would imagine, from the these prices. So it's 185 in 2021, 157. So, I, yeah, I imagine they're older boom screeds that have been used in prior projects now getting refurbished and resold to people who don't want to pay for the, the latest model. And then the 3D, the, the Samara Line Dragon, just to give you a comparison, is, is much less, 38,000 per unit in 2021 and, 20, and 36 in 2020. Another one that's quite high and comparable, but they only sold three units in both 2021 and 2020, which is one of their new products, which is the Skyscreed. So this is, and this sells for, in 2020, they sold it for 333,000. And in 2021, they'd reduced the average price down to 300,000. So it's very comparable to the Boom Screeds. Now this is one that, it's a screed uh, big with a big arm for smoothing over, but it sits on top of Skyscrapers, basically it's for smoothing over the and doing the the whole roof area on top of a, a tower block for instance as it's being built so it's much more like a kind of a crane in appearance I, I recommend having a look Samara actually has a YouTube channel and they have videos you can see all of these different machines in action to get like an actual picture of of what they look like um, and I think I might have shared some of these videos on on Twitter at, at various points as well the Samara line dragon is Basically, uh, it's a concrete placement machine, so it's it has a a big hose and it can and it's remote controlled and it can be we driven out into the concrete to to place the thing. And this is if you imagine people physically doing this, when you're carrying a hose full of liquid concrete, it must weigh an absolute ton. So it's there's a, apparently a lot of back injuries and stuff like that. You they read some of the testimonials with some of the some of the construction companies that use it, and they're talking about how just it's worth its value just in terms of the 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 reduction in back injuries and medical claims they've had to they've had to file out. So that Samara Line Dragon, as we'll find out later on, actually was something that they acquired through an acquisition as well. It was. Obviously, it didn't used to be called Samero Line Dragon. It used to just be called the Line Dragon. So they, uh, that's something they've purchased. Right, so let's just uh, carry on reading. So many of the, the product lines are complementary to each other. For example, the 3D profiler system can be combined with most of the laser screed models to allow accurate paving of contoured surfaces. Similarly, the Samero Line Dragon, a product acquired in 2019, as I said, can be combined with smaller laser screed models to ra for rapid and precise concrete placing and leveling. A, new re a newly released product, Broom and Cure, is also designed to work in, in concrete with the Boom screed models to brush and cure the concrete immediately after it has been leveled. So there's a good video of that as well on their YouTube channel showing you these the boom the uh, boom screed going in smoothing the concrete and then it being uh, following right behind it you've got this broom and cure machine that looks very very similar with a big arm that goes out and it just smooths the 
concrete and sprays the the curing uh, mixture. I think it might just be water, but I, I'm not an expert, so I can't tell you. But um, this is something that in other videos you've seen you see is a very manual job. They've got these guys doing doing the the brooming with these absolutely massive long bit like when you see window cleaning of really high buildings and stuff it's that kind of thing with a bit of a, a quite a wide thing but it's obviously limited by what the kind of weight they can actually hold whereas obviously if you've got this in a big mechanical arm it can uh, have a much wider broom and, and do and, and be much more efficient but obviously it's a it's a much bigger much bigger more costly machine but there's obviously some value there and it's a product they've brought out so let's have a look at as you would expect many of the technologies the companies developed are protected by patents they currently have 90 patents either in place or pending and continue to invest in new product research and development so yes this was quite impressive and when i looked at some of their competitors the samara really stands out as the the largest patent holders in the in the industry and i, th I think i mentioned that later on when we talk about some of their competitors so geographic distribution the company's global headquarters is in Fort Myers, Florida, and its main production facility is based in, I think I want to say, Halton, Halton, Michigan. Maybe someone who who's, uh, comes from Michigan and knows that name can correct me. It also has regional sales and service offices in the UK, India, Australia, and China. The Halton facility has been undergoing a $9.5 million, 50,000 square foot expansion, which will increase its production capacity by 35%. This was on track for completion by year-end 2022, and on budget as of their latest trading update. So I can confirm it later on, they, they confirmed that it was completed and on, on budget. The expansion will facilitate production volume to support $175 million in revenue, creating capacity for growth from the $133.3 million of revenue generated in 2021 and the $138.8 million estimated for 2022. So I'll, after I've gone through this, I'll update you on what their latest figures were and whether they met these estimates. North America is the company's largest market, making up 80% of sales in 2021. This is followed by Europe at 9.1%, Australia at 4.6%, China at 2.0%, and the rest of the world contributing a combined 4.4%. So I've got a little graph here showing the those regional sales. And North America can be shown in 2021, produced 1066 million dollars in sales and that was up on up from 70.7 million dollars in sales the previous year europe the next highest at 12.1 million dollars in 2021 and 8.6 million dollars in 2020 australia then at 6.1 in 2020 and this is a pretty phenomenal increase from the 1.1 million dollars they did in 2020 and this is as i'm going to explain Due to the fairly recent establishment of the of the sale of a new sales office and team in Australia, so this is why, on the relative basis, Europe and Australia, and Australia in particular, are showing the greatest year-over-year -year growth in their region. China, it was two point seven 
million dollars in 2021 and it was just down from 3.9 in 2020 and this is the only region to have had a decrease uh, between those two years and um, we'll uh, we'll get a little bit into that in, uh, later on and the rest of the world combined did 5.8 million dollars and in which is an increase on the 4.3 million dollars achieved in 2020. The European and Australian sales and service offices were established fairly recently with the European office the older of the two. The investment made in these regional sales and service teams is starting to show in the revenue growth with the Australian growth particularly standing out though from a lower base. That's what I was mentioning. Due to a lack of demand from its, for its products in China, the company is scaling back its operations there, meaning sales in the country are likely to grow in the near to medium term. So something I quite like here is that once they have realised that a certain region, in this case China, is not really going to be a, a particularly conducive to sales, they've been quite quick to pivot. And so we're not ploughing loads of money into it and wasting that capital we're just trying it out put it they put it a small operations there they had a training facility set up but they've been there's not the they're not falling to the sunk cost fallacy or anything and they're, they've been quite quick to pivot away from it and wait until it's uh, an attractive area again i think the reasons they gave for china not being an area it's going to work is i think the perhaps regulatory stuff on in the country there's not it's not been particularly positive towards them as a foreign company trying to set up trying to sell in in china also i think that i think part of that is also to do with there's a a local competitor that really only has quite basic range nothing to match some of the bigger screed models and and higher tech stuff that they've got but they do have some basic leveling uh, laser screen leveling technology and so i think china is trying to protect that con that company hope preventing some of that this that bit's speculation but i would imagine it's something along those lines and i'm not entirely sure that even though there is that company being started there's so obviously there are people in china who believe there is value in it i think generally the construction industry hasn't perhaps appreciated the value of of the the laser screen technology and how it it can improve the benefits of the it can have on the efficiency of uh, a warehouse as operation afterwards um, reducing wear on on equipment you know forklift trucks driving around um, and just yeah generally improving the precision of things are afterwards and and the speed of, of which you can you can achieve these these results. So I don't think that's quite been appreciated in China yet, and I don't think there's so there's not really the market for it at the moment. So they've they've pivoted away. So let's have a quick sip. I realised in the uh, the last podcast, my because I, I wasn't taking any drinks, my lips were smacking a bit, which I'm I'm sure was quite annoying to anybody listening to it. So I'll try and keep my mouth moist so <laughs> so you don't get that experience this time so um let's move on to have a look at the customers so samaria's main customer the concrete contractors 
which use its products in a wide array of construction projects. This has included work for a plethora of the world's largest organizations, such as, I just want to say, I do love the uh, the word plethora. So the a plethora of the world's largest organizations, such as Costco, Walmart, Home Depot, or Home Depot, I, yeah, I'm not sure which way. I th Home Depot is perhaps how we would say it, but Home Depot is the American saying. Um, and it is an American company, so Home Depot will go with. B&Q, IKEA, Coca-Cola, FedEx, and Tesla. So quite an impressive array of big blue chip companies there that they, they can call customers via concrete contractors that are actually using the machines to, to do work for these companies. And there's also an awful lot of, they do an awful lot of well, their machines are used for an awful lot of, sort of public sector work as well prisons schools hospitals all that kind of stuff so yeah it's uh it's quite a diverse number of use cases in there the company endeavors to build up long-standing customer relationships which leads to repeat business and ongoing revenue from after-sales services like product training and servicing and repair it also manufactures refurbish uh, in brackets refurbishes older machines which it resells to more financially constrained customers at lower prices than the new models so this is what we saw earlier with the um, the remanufactured machines selling for around about half the price of the of the new ones so it means they get some resale value, and i think the the actual profit margin on those is pretty phenomenal because they don't have to do too much work to get them into shape they're able to resell them on. Due to the size of some of Sumero's customers, there is an element of concentration to revenues in any given period. For example, at 31st of December 2021, the company had two customers which represented 21% of total accounts receivable. Similarly, at 30th of June 2022, the company had two customers which represented 20% of total accounts receivable. Geographic expansion is likely to reduce this concentration going forward. So yeah, I think a large part of this is going to be to the the nature of some of the the, the size of some of the concrete contractors in America and how, and I'm sure that there there are some that operate over multiple states, for instance. So or have are involved get large contracts for various different national nationwide. Uh, companies as we've mentioned before so I think yeah there's, there's going to be just an element of concentration just because of the concentration in the concrete contractor industry but um, yeah but move, with the geographic expansion into other other regions I think that's naturally going to decrease some of the concentration it's still not too bad um, so top two customers representing sort of 20% is a uh, the account receivable is, is not too bad and like i say these, these are pretty big repeatable contractors doing contracts for big blue chip companies and government contracts and so on so their uh, insolvency risk is probably pretty low anyway so let's have a look at competition so Sumero is the largest and oldest manufacturer of laser screen leveling machines having pioneered the technology in 1986 its closest competitor is Lig 
I think I want to say Ligchine or Ligchine. Let's say, let's call it Ligchine. Another US company founded in 2007, which offers a range of boom screed machines with their own laser guided technology. They also make one drive-in model, which is comparable to the Rhydon range from Samero, and a concrete placement machine, which is a competitor to the line to the Samero Line Dragon. In terms of scale, Ligchine. Let's change the Ligchine. In terms of scale, Ligchine has a much smaller product offering than Samero, illustrated by the six patents it has in place and eight pending compared to Samero's 90. So that's what I was saying earlier. I found a UK-based concrete contractor which uses Ligchine boom screed which used a Ligchine boom screed alongside a range of boomed and ride-on models from Samero. This demonstrates the that they also have a international presence and can compete with Samero in certain product categories. In this case, it was a mid-sized remote-controlled machine, which is not something Samero currently offers. So this was interesting, yeah. But the the big Samero boom screens, they always uh, have an operator sitting on them. Whereas with the sort of big boom screens that were offered by Ligchine, which uh, seemed fairly comparable in size, maybe not quite as big as some of the biggest Samara models. But what was interesting was that they were actually, there was a guy standing away from it with a remote control unit operating it. So didn't actually have to have a guy sitting on it. And I'm not sure um, whether that's it's still a comparable size. So I'm not sure what, whether that's an advantage or not. Um, but uh, yeah, that's just something to bear in mind. There's a, there is a, a potential thing uh, offering there that Ligchin provides that Samero doesn't. Maybe something they they'll they'll develop if if there is a a requirement for it, a demand for it. The other competitor I found is Hiking Laser Screed, and this is the uh, the Chinese company I I was alluding to when talking about China. So. Hiking Laser Screed, a Chinese company that makes a range of ride-on and walk-behind Laser Screed machines in the 20k to 50k price bracket. As far as I can tell, they are predominantly they predominantly sell their products in China and were possibly a, a contributing factor to the lack of demand for Samara's products in the country. As I was saying earlier, I don't see them as a major competitor to Samara at this time due to their product offering being entirely at the lower end of Samara's range and the lack of international presence. It also appears that much of the technology is not proprietary and they import a lot of their key components from the manufacturers in Germany and other countries. I don't think they can compete with so I don't think they can compete with Samara from a technical standpoint. However, their factory pr- footprint is significant and would likely facilitate substantial sales growth in the future. So if you have a look on their website and you see some of their videos and stuff, you can see I've got a pretty massive uh, factory facility set up there. So there's uh, plenty of room for for growth there if uh, if they do need to expand. Samara's proprietary technology and commitment to continued R&D, along with its long-standing relationships with major concrete contractors and international scale, provide it with a substantial moat and large margins. The risk is that the profitability of the business will attract more competition to the market 
that will subsequently shrink the company's margins. Given the competitive advantages of the company and its relatively small market capitalization, I see this as more li- I see it as more likely that a larger company would like would acquire Sumero rather than try to compete directly. That was a interesting thing. So maybe you you could see some large given that it's just a 200 million pound market cap, 250 million dollars, you could see some large competitor well, some large machine company. There's plenty that have got in the multi-billions of dollars that could come along and uh, decide this was uh, something they wanted to acquire. Much like you sort of saw in some of Samaria's earlier history when it was being picked up by private equity companies and so on. So I, I think companies of this size definitely can be considered targets for this kind of thing, whether it's from a a company in the, in the space making these kind of machines or a uh, private equity to do a, a leverage buyout or something they would probably wouldn't need much leverage for 200 million dollars or 250 million dollars um, and yeah I think if when I looked it up I think Dover Corporation is actually a uh, might be getting this wrong but I think it was a fairly large machine company in the multi-billion dollars uh, and I, I think I mentioned that a little bit later on when talking about management because uh, some of the management have some links to, to Dover. Right, so let's have a look at the ownership of the company. So there is no controlling shareholder with majority ownership of the company and the top 10 largest positions are all comfortably below 10% as shown in the table below. In terms of internal ownership, the largest shareholder by far is the company's CEO, Jack Cooney, who holds around about 1%. So we uh, we have a list here of uh, some of the top holders of this company. So Hargreaves Landown, Close Brothers Asset Management, Interactive Investor, Unicorn Asset Management, Aberdeen Standard Investments, Chelverton Asset Management, Schroeder Investment Management, Canaccord, Genuity Wealth Management, Society General, and AJ Bell. And I've made a little note underneath saying, I could be wrong, but I believe the stock brokers listed, e.g. Hargreaves Landown, Interactive Investor, and AJ Bell, actually represent the conglomeration of individual investor accounts. Um, so yeah, I could be wrong with that, but... That would uh, that would make sense. Uh, but these figures did come from the the company's, I believe the company's website. So yeah, I'm not sure the metrics they use for categorising their largest shareholders. Capital allocation. So this is the uh, quite an interesting, important bit. The company executive team strikes a healthy balance between investing for the growth of the business and returning capital to shareholders. Examples of investments made include the $9.5 million expansion of the Horton production facility, the, the establishment and build-out of the in-country sales and service teams in an increasing number of geographies, and the acquisition of the business assets of Lion Dragon LLC. So that was obviously what became Samara Line Dragon. In terms of capital returns, the primary medium is through dividends. 
the company pays regular final and interim dividends, which most recently came to 22.02 cents and 10 cents per share, respectively. In addition, the company has started paying a supplementary dividend which amounted to 19.70 cents for financial year 2021. The supplementary dividend is set according to a policy of paying 50% of the excess of net cash over the year-end target. In 2021, this target was $20 million, but for 2022 it will be raised to $25 million to reflect the growth of the business. Overall, dividends paid in 2022 totaled 51.72 cents, equating to a yield of circa 11.6% on the stock price of £3.70, or $4.46. So it's worth noting, I think this is more like uh, £4.20 now. So it has that yield. Relative yield has come down a little bit as the stock price is appreciated a little. In addition to dividends, the company also does share buybacks. Currently, these are just being used to offset stock-based compensation and prevent shareholder dilution. Stock-based compensation is currently running at around 1-2% a year, so a similar quantity of shares are being repurchased on an annual basis. So we'll have a little drink. Right, so let's have a look at the, the balance sheet. The company has a very robust balance sheet with a current ratio of 3.79, asset ratio of 3, and net cash after subtracting lease liabilities of $37.9 million at year-end 2021, the last audited financial statements. So just remember <laughs> with that cash figure that the, the market cap is only around about 250 or closer to maybe $300 million, so quite a big chunk of cash there. These figures decreased somewhat in, to eight, in half one 2022, to 3.22 for the current ratio, 2.13 for the asset ratio, and $23.4 million for the net cash, following the payment of dividends and an increase in inventory. So you'd expect these to come up towards the end of the year as uh, by the time you get around to the, the same point at which the, the previous figures on the, on the year-end balance sheet were reported. So as of year-end 2021, Sumero's current assets made up the majority of its total assets, $68.1 million of $97.1 million, uh, sorry, $97.4 million. And most of this was cash and cash equivalents, $42.1 million. Inventories made up a further $14.3 million and receivables $7.7 million. At the end of H1 2022, Cash and cash equivalents had fallen to $27.2 million following the dividend payment made in May. Receivables had been reduced to $6.6 million owing to prompt customer payment and inventory had increased substantially to $19.9 million. The majority of the company's non-current assets are made up of, of tangible assets within the category of property, plant and equipment, PP and E. At year-end 2021, PP&E was valued at $21.6 million 
and third and at the 30th of June 2022 it had increased to 23.2 million dollars after continuing work on the Horton facility expansion was capitalized intangible assets intellectual property etc and goodwill make up only made up only a small portion of the company's overall assets at 30th of June 2022, they were valued at $1.3 million and $3.3 million, respectively. The goodwill present on the balance sheet is attributable to the company's prior sale of Dover, from Dover Corporation to the Gores Group in 2005, and the later purchase of the Lion Dragon LLC business assets in 2019. On the liability side of things, there is a similar picture. Current liabilities made up, make up the vast majority of total liabilities, $18.3 million of $21.7 million as of 30th of June 2022. And of these, accounts payable and, and accrued expenses were the most significant at $7.4 million and $10.4 million respectively. Samaro's debt interest is more than covered by the interest they receive on their cash deposits, so no need to worry about interest cover. There's Nice to hear about a company that, compared to one of us, Discovery, uh, for instance, that basically doesn't have any kind of leverage to worry about. The company has a $10 million line of credit with a maturity date of September 2024 and an interest rate of LIBOR. So I think that's London Interbank, something right? Um, LIBOR plus point. Two five percent, which as yet remains undrawn. Subtracting the liabilities from the assets gives the shareholders' equity, which was sixty-eight point three million dollars as of thirtieth of June, twenty twenty-two, with a market capitalization of circa two hundred forty-nine million dollars, so about two hundred fifty million dollars. But as we say, it's slightly higher now. This gives a price-to-book value of three point six. It's worth noting that this is calculated using the mid-year equity figure and given management's year-end estimate for cash to be $39.9 million, we can reasonably expect this price-to-book ratio to be a little lower. So, yeah, something just worth noting here with the price-to-book stuff is that, as you'll see later on when we start talking about margins and things and return on, capital and return on equity um, it's uh, it's pretty it goes well because of the things like the, the patents and the and the general technology they they have the, and the, the comp their ability to compete with their com competitors and the unique offering they're able to make quite a bit more money than than would be suggested by their their book value so it's a little bit like you see with some of the tech companies and stuff like that in terms of uh, their price to book being fairly meaningless compared to the uh, their sort of PE ratio or or other sort of or looking at the cash flows or other metrics so yeah but as we'll see it's uh, the company's trading pretty cheaply on all sorts of earning all, all kind of earning metrics so let's have a look at the income now as shown in the chart below, the company's revenues have grown quite substantially since listing, 
though with some cyclicality. There was some rapid growth in 2006 and 2007 before the 2008 financial crisis hit and depressed revenues from 2009 to 2011. Then from 2012 to 2018 there was an upward march that which cooled off slightly in 2019 and then remained flat in 2020 as we entered the pandemic. 2021 saw a pretty dramatic increase likely due to pent-up demand from 2020 that was pushed back a year though this appears to be roughly the level you'd expect if 2019 and 2020 had followed the trend of the prior eight years. Management has estimated that revenues for 2022 will come in at $138.8 million. And uh, I'll give you the proper figure on this in a bit later. Suggesting the high revenue figure in 2021 wasn't just a one-off spike. So yeah, it's a bit of a, a rollercoaster kind of graph. You've got to have a, a little peak after it, after it listed. It then drops down because it obviously goes into the financial crisis. And I think perhaps there their approach towards debt and other things was quite different at that time and they were paying high debt interest at that time and then they found religion and <laughs> sorted out their, their balance sheet and then you've just got a, a really nice smooth pretty much straight line up all the way up to 2018 before it then kind of leveled off a bit in 2019 and 2020 and then sort of continued back up in 2021 pretty much following the straight line that was set from 2012 to 2018 so yeah 2019 interesting to see that like, the year before the pandemic there were there was some kind of cooling off there um but yeah it was a kind of abnormal for such a smooth growth curve to be shown anyway right so let's uh let's move on if we include the estimated figure for 2022, the average 5-year and 10-year revenue growth comes in at 11.72% and 16.96% respectively. Given the scope for international growth outside the company's main North American market, I think it's reasonable to expect revenue growth of around 10% or more to continue. Of course, there is the potential for revenues to take a hit if the, the economy enters a prolonged recession over the next couple of years. Rapid interest rate rises in response to double-digit double inflation in much of the world is likely to have knock-on effects to the global economy that may depress demand for construction and, in turn, some marriage products. Much of the revenue increase in 2022 was attributable to inflation-driven price rises rather than increased sales volumes. In fact, as mentioned earlier, units sold in H1 2022 fell relative to the year before. But we'll have to wait to see how things went in H2 for a full comparison. I think it would be inaccurate to attribute, to attribute any slowdown in 2022 sales to general economic stagnation. Rather, it's more likely to be revenue returning from its previous growth to its re previous growth trajectory after the demand carried over from 2020 into 2021 caused a dramatic spike. Net income paints a similar picture, though a little less smoothly and with some notable negative figures between 2009 and 2011. The particularly large drop in 2009 was likely due to the write-off of inventory or other assets as a similar fall was not seen in the operating income. 
I have limited data going back this far, so I'm only able to make an educated guess. So yeah, I've given a graph here showing the, the net income and operating income, going all the way back to the time it was listed. And it follows a similar kind of curve, but the net income turns pretty negative in 2009, which um, and then sort of stays negative for two years after that, so two, 2010 and 2011. Only really come and then just started turning profitable again in 2012, and then sort of shooting up and following the same kind of trajectory curve we saw before, but slightly more leverage because it's going from from negative to positive. So let's um, let's have a look here. The company has maintained a consistently high gross profit margin over the last decade averaging 55.1% over this period. The operating profit and net profit margins have shown impressive growth of 4.39% and 3.17% respectively in 2012 to sorry, sorry in 2012 in 2012 to ah, okay this is the this is so those are the profit margins to begin with, 4.39% and 3.17% in 2012. And then in 2021, they'd gone up to 33.86% and 26.12%, which is uh, yeah pretty phenomenal. The, the profit margin increases there in operating and net profits, respectively. The change in these figures indicates a substantial improvement in operational efficiency, which I would attribute largely to operational leverage. Operating expenses have grown more slowly than revenues. So we can see I've, I've listed these graphs here, showing the gross margins are sort of gradually built, but you've seen a pretty rapid growth and then uh, kind of leveling out of the operating and income margins. But yeah, as we're going to see now, the star of the show in terms of metrics has to be return on equity. Last year the company achieved a pretty phenomenal 50.1% and the average of the last 5 and 10 years has been 39.7 and 34.8% respectively. These figures highlight the quality of the business and the competitive advantages it holds in terms of brand and technology. So you can see a graph here showing the return on equity across the years from 2012 to 2021. We had a couple of years that were over 50 and then there's a few, there's one over 42 and then the average, you can see quite a few over sort of 33 to 38 kind of range and then, then as I said the averages before um, were 39.7 for five, over five years and 34.8% over 10 years. So still just pretty crazy margins when you're thinking about this is a, an industrial company. So cash flows. In the year ended 31st of December 2021, cash flows from operations came to $36.9 million. This was not far from the net profit figure of $34.8 million, as positive adjustments for depreciation and amortization, stock-based compensation and increased payables balanced negative adjustments for increased inventories, 
increased receivables and de decreased income taxes payable. The difference between the two figures in 2020 was much larger, with net profit coming to $18.8 million and cash flows from operations $30.6 million. The primary reason for this was the positive adjustment for reduced receivables and inventories and increased payables without any large negative adjustments to compensate. These are all moves you would expect management to make to maintain liquidity during a period of economic turbulence. So yeah, you'd expect them to collect as much money as they can from their receivables and uh, sell down their inventory as much as they can and increase their payables. So delay payments to suppliers as much as possible if you're going to try and generate cash in, a, in an economic, the turbulent period as we saw in 2020. In the results for H1 2022, cash flows from operations decreased to $12.8 million from $16 million in H1 2021. This fall was quite a bit larger than that for the net profit figure. And we're given here H1 2022, um, net profit was $17.5 million, and H1 2021 it was $18.3 million, so uh, much closer figures and this can be attributed to a number of factors increased inventories increased by 5.7 million dollars in h1 2022 versus 3.1 million dollars in h1 2021 accounts payable accrued expenses and other liabilities remained largely unchanged in h1 2022 while in h1 2021 they increased by 5.1 million dollars a decrease in receivables of $1.2 million in H1 2022 versus an increase in an increase of $2.8 million in H1 2021 was only partially offset uh, only partially offset the prior two factors. So yeah, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know with these um, when looking at when you're reconciling net profit to cash flows from operations uh, things like increases in receivables are uh, yeah increases in you've got to you have counter effects from increases in receivables and decreases and increases in payables and so on um, depending on effectively just something like a decrease in inventories implies that you've sold that inventory and therefore generated cash and same kind of thing if you if you increase receivables and then you're assuming that you've sold more things but not received the cash for them and if you decrease receivables you've you've managed to get receivables are the credit you've given out to uh, your customers and effectively when you the receivables decrease it's implying that the customers have paid you cash so your cat you're expecting your cash balance to have gone up but in terms of sales, when you make a sale and you collect a you you um, record a receivable, that counts towards the profit. And so this is why. So in in terms of a profit basis, you could make all your sales for a year effectively in credit and not receive any cash for them, and still have made a, net, a great net profit figure, but you haven't actually had any cash flows from operations for those. So yeah, it's all 
all this kind of stuff is uh, is what's used to reconcile you back you down from the, the the profit figures to to the cash flows. For anybody uh, who wanted to know. So in 2021, 6.2 million dollars was invested in purchases of property and equipment, and this trend continued in H1 2022 with a further 2.3 million dollars investment. These will both primarily be attributable to the $9.5 million being invested in the expansion of the Horton production facility. So, net cash used in financing activities amounted to $24.3 million in 2021, comprising largely of the $22.4 million in dividend payments and $1 million in share buybacks. In H1 2022, this had increased to $25.3 million owing to the introduction of a supplementary dividend in addition to the final dividend for 2021. We know that a further interim dividend payment was made in H2 2022 amounting to $5.6 million and uh, share buybacks also continued in the second half of the year and the total is expected to be comparable to 2021. Now uh, I've got a graph of uh, showing the net income, cash flow from operations, and free cash flow. And there's a little description here. So zooming out to look at the broader picture of cash flows over time, we can see that cash flows from operations have generally moved in line with net profit, and in the majority of years exceeded it, meaning the cash conversion ratio has been greater than one. The and I've given the figures here. The five and ten year cash conversion ratios averages are 1.16 and 1.4 respectively. So that's a, a positive thing from sort of business liquidity and and cash cash generation to see a business is generating more cash than it's it's actually recording in in profits or at least matching it. When studying the company's cash flows from a valuation perspective, the cash flows from operations with the optional subtraction of depreciation slash amortization charges are probably the better figure to use rather than free cash flows, which subtract capital expenditure on PP&E such as this capex that will be attributable to growth rather than replacement. So yeah, they don't really give you a division of capex into growth and maintenance capex so uh, but we know that a lot of the spending they've been doing recently at least has been growth capex like the expansion of the production facility and putting in you know new invest and you think about uh yeah I mean, there's other figures i think that don't really show up here as well like for instance if you're expanding your your sales team uh, in other countries, you effectively you've made an investment there, uh, and yet it's increased your. It, it will have, have actually decreased your your gross profit margins, not gross, but uh, your operating profit margins. Uh, but it, initially, and it will show up as higher expenses and so on. But that's effectively an investment you've made into expanding and growing sales in future years. So. And, and bring in increasing your your revenues in future years. So it's a these kind of things don't necessarily 
uh, aren't really necessarily reflected in there so it's uh, but worth bearing these things in mind so have another quick drink so let's have a look at the company's management the company's non-executive chairman is Lawrence Horsch aged 87 Lawrence has been with the company since 2009 and has served on 26 company boards throughout his career as well as investing in 30 venture projects and four corporate turnarounds. He also co-founded SciMed Systems which was later merged with Boston Scientific Corporation. Uh, that sounds quite familiar to me that one. I, I, um, I did actually have a look at it but yeah it's I can't exactly work out why I know it but yeah it's uh, Boston Scientific Corporation. Definitely rings some bells. CEO and director John Jack or John aka Jack Cooney, aged seventy-four, has served as CEO of Sumero since nineteen ninety-seven and became an executive director in two thousand five. Prior to joining Sumero, he was CEO of Advanced Machine Company, a hundred and forty-five million dollar industrial equipment manufacturer located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I think the performance of the company over Jack's long tenure speaks to his aptitude as CEO. John Jungter, aged eight, sorry, aged fifty-one, not eighty-one, joined Sumero in twenty fifteen as CFO, but has recently taken over the president role from Jack Cooney, and now serves as both company president and director. Previously, John Jungter was CFO of Datamax O'Neill, a subsidiary of Dover Corporation, which we know previously owned Sumero. So that was uh, one of the links I was mentioning earlier. The current CFO, also serving as secretary and director, is Enzo Licorzi. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Aged 48. Enzo joined Sumero in, in 2018 as vice president of finance and controller. He, was he has previously held a number of finance and senior management roles in several well-known companies. The final member of the executive team is Executive Vice President of Sales and Director Howard Hoffman, aged 59. Howard also joined Sumero in 1997 and has nearly three decades of experience in the concrete industry. He is also an ex-Marine. The board has a further three non-executive directors, namely Anne Ellis, Thomas Anderson and Robert Schuer. Schuer. So let's, uh, let's move on to the probably the most crucial bit, maybe second most crucial compared to, with risks. So valuation and investment case. Given how closely net profit cash flows from operations and free cash flows have tracked one another over the last decade, I think it is reasonable to take your pick according to your personal preference. To be conservative, I like to use the five-year average as the denominator in valuation ratios, as this allows for a potential downturn in the next few years. Using this approach, the PE, POCF and PFCF for price to earnings, price to operating cash flows and price to free cash flows ratios are 10.9, 9.6 and 10.9 respectively. So PE and PC. PFCF basically the same and then slightly lower for the price to operating cash flows. 
Using the results from 2021 rather than the five-year average, the PE, POCF and PFCF ratios are 7.1, 6.7 and 8.1 respectively. So as you'd expect, come down due to the growth. I feel these modest multiples combined with the strength of the balance sheet provide adequate downside protection. To the upside, if the company is able to keep growing earnings at somewhere between 5 and 10% a year from their current level, you could be looking at an internal rate of return in the range of 15 to 20% when calculated over a 20-year period. This focuses purely on the fundamentals and doesn't factor in any potential re-rating that could occur somewhere along the way, giving shareholders capital gains in excess of this range. At risk of making macroeconomic predictions, it is perhaps worth mentioning that it, the increased infrastructure spending being proposed by many governments around the world, and particularly the US, would likely serve as a tailwind to Somero. Concrete will serve as a crucial component in many infrastructure projects, and in most cases it will need to be levelled. Forecasting aside, the management of Somero has stated that many of its customers have significant project backlogs which provides some visibility for revenues in the coming year. I don't think it's particularly constructive to be too precise with a discounted cash flow DCF analysis as accurately predicting growth rates is highly improbable and it's easy to convince oneself that any investment is attractive with the right input parameters. Instead it's better to position yourself with plenty of margin of safety and scope for substantial gains if the stars align. I feel Sumero offers both these attributes at the current price of £3.70 or $4.46 per share. So like I say, it's come up a little bit since then, but still looks very attractive to me. Still a below 10 PE for a company that's got a an average uh, return on equity sort of well north of 30% over the last 5 and 10 years. And has is only 200 million pounds a bit more now and is growing at the rate it's been it's been able to grow and has and has a lot of scope it's only really just touching the surface of what it could be doing internationally it's uh largely still 80 percent of its revenues are derived from the us so a lot of potential for you could see you know maybe not the same size as the us but if if Europe and Australia and some of the Latin American markets of that start to grow up to be you know comparable sizes to the to the US market you could see really massive growth uh, in the company you could I could I could see a path to it being a billion dollar company in the in the future that's for sure uh, if if the stars align as I said but on the downside you're still only paying for less than 10 times what it's currently producing so even if it just stayed in the US and uh, the international, for maybe it would be slightly a slightly more risky offering then. But we're talking about a company as well that's continually continually innovating and developing new products, spends a, a good amount on R and D each year to keep improving its offering. It's not a company that's just sitting still. So yeah, it's uh, it's got a lot of the right kind of asymmetry, I would say that you'd want to look for in, the, in an investment. So speaking of, of downsides, let's have a look at the risks. 
So the two primary risks to Merifaces are a fall in demand due to an economic downturn and increased competition. I will address both in turn. The company has been around since 1986 and has been publicly listed since 2006, which means it has survived several recessions of which the most impertinent was the global financial crisis, the GFC, of 2008. In the financial data we studied earlier, we saw that revenues took a substantial hit in the years following the GFC and net income turned negative for three years. There are a couple of notable points to be made here. Firstly, cash flows from operations remained positive in all years but 2009, they were, where they were $1.2 million. Second, secondly, the company had a net debt position entering the crisis and was forced to refinance this debt while the financial sector was decidedly risk off. On this second point, this is far from the position the company is in today. It has a substantial net cash position and no debt at all if you exclude lease liabilities. In addition, it has ten million dollars of pre-arranged debt. Uh, of, it has a ten million dollar pre-arranged debt facility in place should it need to draw on it in a in a crisis of liquidity. These factors, combined with the increased scale of the company and growing presence in international markets, make it more resilient to a downturn than it was in two thousand and eight. I would consider it highly probable that the company could survive even a recession of GFC magnitude. Addressing the matter of competition, as, I current, as I've discussed previously, there are already a couple of competitors in this space. Currently neither have the scale or product range to match Sumero, but this doesn't mean they couldn't in the future. Sumero will need to continue to grow and innovate in order to stay ahead of its competitors and prevent it losing market share. Thus far, the management has proven their willingness to do so in a measured way that maintains the financial resilience of the company. This process is likely to prove beneficial to shareholders and customers alike, as the product offering and cash flows of the company will both be improved. Something that could be considered a risk is the possibility of the company being acquired. As briefly mentioned above, the company's competitive advantages and relatively small size from a market capitalization perspective make it likely that any large company wishing to enter the sector may consider an acquisition the easier option when compared to building a competing business from scratch. Some may see this as an attractive possibility as it would result in a quick gain, but for someone looking to hold the business for a long time and benefit from its potential growth, this wouldn't be a desirable outcome. So I'll just give, uh, I've pretty much said this already, but let's just give the final conclusion I've listed here. So as stated at the top, the size of this highly profitable and growing US industrial company makes it too small for many institutional investors, which in turn creates an attractive opportunity for individuals. Adequate margin of safety is provided by a robust balance sheet with net cash and a PE of 7.1. The prospect of continued internal growth, sorry, continued international growth which would be internal as well, and a multiple re-rating offers the potential for outsized returns. So that was uh, finishing up my my write-up on it. So I just wanted to, so after I wrote that, we had a, a trading update. So I just want to, I did a, a Twitter thread on this. So you can, uh, you can have a look at that on my uh, Twitter profile if, uh, if you want to read this one. Um, yeah, the obviously the write-up was at firmreturns.com, so you can uh, you can read that there. 
Um, but yeah, let's look at the trading update. So I said here, Sumeria Enterprises Inc. released a trading update for the financial year ended 31st of December 2022 today. So here are some highlights. Revenue is expected to come in at $134 million versus the previously forecast $138.8 million. So that was just to for you when that was still up on the previous year, which is 133.3, but yeah, a little bit down from its forecast. This is predominantly due to supply chain issues in the US market that led to concrete shortages and disruption to construction projects. A similar drop in EBITDA to $46 million versus a forecast $47.7 million was also seen as a result. Cash at the end of the period was $34 million. On a positive note, trading in Europe increased by more than 20% and Australia nearly 40%. In 2021, these regions contributed $12.1 million and $6.1 million respectively. So we can estimate this year's figures to be somewhere around $14.5 million and $8.9 million. So yeah, we're seeing that international growth continuing as, as desired. Total revenue growth outside the US came to just under 20%, resulting in an international revenue contribution of 24% versus 20% last year. So that means the US has come down from 80% down to 76% of the revenue. So it's all that's all looking positive. But obviously part of that is uh, due to the US market slowing down a little bit as well. But generally good to see that we've still got a higher revenue than the previous year. But uh, overall, uh, but a higher revenue overall, but a, uh, a more diversified geographical revenue mix. So the, and as I alluded to earlier, the 50,000 square foot facility expansion was completed in Q4 and is expected to be fully operational in Q1 2023. Um, and it was all on budget. Outlook for 2023 is positive with revenue and cash generation expected to be comparable to 2022. So one would hope that would mean you're going to have similar expectations for what they're going to offer for their uh, supplementary dividend as well. So further investment is planned for this year to fuel future growth. And uh, I've said all in all, a pretty good result considering supply chain disruptions and inflationary pressures that have affected the construction industry this year. So I think there was also something about um, revenues in Europe being pushed back a little bit as well so that the second half of the maybe that was in the previous but in my write-up but there yeah there was some pushback of revenues because of delays in supply chain so there were the, it's the company's done quite well with supply managing supply chain disruptions and another sort of issues and still managed to I think there's been it, be able to increase revenues a little bit through price hikes matching inflation rather than perhaps greater volumes unit volumes but we don't have all that information yet so just speculation at the moment so yeah that that pretty much uh wraps up Sumero. um 
like I say, you can check out the the article on firmreturns.com um, listed on the front page. You can find it, and then you've got uh, you can also subscribe to get uh, the ones I'm trying to do at the moment, uh, sort of one right up a month. So um, this one came, or the the last one came out around beginning of this month. So it'll be sort of beginning of next month. And um, I'm currently working on quite an interesting one. It's a, a net asset play, a UK pub and hotel chain um, called Fuller Smith and Turner. A uh, really quite interesting one. It's selling at. They they recently re- revalued the asset portfolio, so, so the estate of of pubs and hotels, uh, which had not previously been done since nineteen ninety nine, and uh, the result was that it's added something like four hundred million pounds onto the book value of the company, which, considering the company is currently trading below the book value. That from the using the nineteen ninety nine figures puts it at something like, I think the current share price is about five pound thirty a share, and the book value is estimated to be thirteen pounds seventy six or something crazy like that. So, yeah, a pretty crazy discount to very tangible you know real estate book value. And reading through, I've been I'm still working on reading through it at the moment, but it's quite an interesting play with um in terms of the it being, I think, currently it's uh, still owned majority by a family, by the Fuller, Smith and Turner families. So it's not something that you would expect to be to be bought out or something like that. And you you expect them to be really managing it with the business is interests in mind, which is quite good. I'm I'm just getting uh, building up my pitch on it yet, so I've not got a full full thesis or anything, but. Yeah, I'm liking it so far, and so yeah, if you're if you're interested in getting that in your inbox, so subscribe to the to the newsletter, and uh, you should get that at the beginning of next month when I've uh, finished writing it up. But anyway, that uh, that concludes the second episode, and uh, I might do a couple more before I do that next write up. Anyway, I've I've still got a couple of other before I release the the next write up one that I just mentioned. I've also got might do a, a podcast on Aviva which is another one I've written up and finally uh, Taylor Maritime Investments which are two, two quite different companies so you're getting quite a diverse array of, of different businesses to explore anyway until then I'll uh, I'll say goodbye thanks for listening <laughs>